Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Enlightened investors, delighted to be back with you again today. Welcome to the show. Today, we are going to take a look at a corporate finance executive's journey from corporation to real estate investor. Today with us is Todd Solsinger, and he is the CEO of Blue Elm Investments, a private equity real estate firm based in San Francisco. Todd is a former Silicon Valley finance executive turned real estate investor, and he founded Blue Elm to offer investors a strategic way to diversify their portfolios by creating passive investment opportunities through the acquisition of mobile home parks, apartments, and mortgage notes. Todd is the co-author of Success Habits of Super Achievers, an Amazon bestseller with tips and inspiring stories to accelerate our success. So Todd, take us into the show and share with us a key moment from your formative years. Thanks for having me on, Alice. Great to be here. Well, when I, I'm thinking about that that question, it reminds me of something that I shared in the Success, Success Habits of Super Achievers books. When I first bought my first house in San Jose, California, back in the 90s, I met, became friends with one of my neighbors, and he was kind of this typical millionaire next door kind of guy who was, you know, had a toupee or had colored his hair and drove kind of a beat up pickup truck. But the more I got to meet him over the years, he would just say things like, oh, I need to check on this house that I'm renting around the street. Oh, okay. And then, yeah, I've got this apartment complex I've got to go run over and check on. And then you know, a couple months later, oh, I've got this strip mall you know, down the road that I have to go check on. I thought like, this guy is just very mild mannered, quiet, not what you might typically see in Silicon Valley of people making money through IPOs and that, but had built this massive real estate portfolio. And he was one of my early inspirations to think about how I could possibly, you know, begin in creating a real estate career or portfolio. Well, interesting introduction. It's always fascinating how it is that people first get into real estate and it, it often is unusual in unexpected ways. Todd, thanks for sharing that with us. Tell us about your beginnings in real estate from the initial passive and active investment experiences that you began with? Sure. I got into real estate, I think, the way a lot of people do in starting with single family homes, maybe took a little bit different path in that I kind of early on in my real estate education career, or, or I guess maybe experience was I got connected with Robert Helms and Russell Gray from the Real Estate Guys. Uh, they have a, a podcast as well. But they used to live in Silicon Valley and would do local meetups. And I would attend those and start to meet investors and was thinking about possibly buying a single family home somewhere to rent. Where I live here in Silicon Valley, it's very expensive to buy homes. And usually the numbers don't work unless you're solely counting on appreciation. And uh, through some of the meetups and groups I was going to through them, I met a guy who was selling houses in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. And I first thought that's impossible. How can you possibly own a home thousands of miles from where you live? But over a several month period, ended up taking a field trip out to Dallas, meeting with brokers and property managers and seeing neighborhoods and ended up pulling the trigger and buying some houses there. And 
found out that it really was possible to invest remotely. Well, interesting. Fortuitous introductions that you've had in your life, taking you from Silicon Valley, where it's very, very difficult to find cash flowing properties, to Dallas, Fort Worth area. Are you still investing in the Dallas-Fort Worth area or is has that market changed and the dynamics changed there? So that's not cash flowing any longer. Yeah, the dynamics have changed for sure. I bought my first properties there in 2013 and I bought some other ones in 2014 and have not continued to purchase there. Prices have gone up quite a bit and it makes the numbers work less and less. And when I started to make the transition into being an active real estate investor, and putting together syndications with my limited partner investors. I initially started down the path of investing in mobile home parks and have since transitioned into apartments and some other things. So I have not continued to invest there. I think that market is still just, you know, an incredibly strong market. The, every time I, you know, visit there for one reason or another, it's just amazing to see the gross and inward migration and from a people standpoint and from a company standpoint. So still one of my favorite markets. Yeah, it probably is a still strong, a strong market, but I, I'm thinking of entry into that market has changed considerably. Yeah. Like, like when I bought the houses in 2013, you know, things were, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth had typically been a market that was good for cash flow, but didn't have a lot of appreciation historically. And, the, the, you know, the houses I was looking at were kind of in the 130 to and $70,000 range and those same houses are probably in the 220 to 300 range. So Dallas has now become from an appreciation standpoint, a you know, pretty high growth market that it hadn't been historically. Well, tell, tell us about your adventures into mobile home parks and that is where you began. Why did you start there and what was that journey like? Well, then I decided to found Blue Elm Investments to make a transition out of working in corporate finance. I did that kind of with the idea of my combining my passion for real estate with my deep experience in finance and underwriting and understanding numbers and analysis and was trying to find the right asset class to work work on. And I had been following different people in the mobile home park space for several years. And around that same time, I connected with a mobile home park consulting property management company that specialized in parks and through that process of deciding, okay, looking at different assets and asset classes and kind of aligning myself with them to help due diligence and, and run parks, I ended up just starting to really look around intensely, talking to mobile home park brokers, uh, other commercial brokers, and, you know, made some, quite a few offers that didn't get accepted. And finally, over, uh, again, over a several month period, ended up finding a couple parks in Georgia and raise money from the investors that I've been talking to for a few years and bought those parks. What was that uh, initial experience like going from single family to all of a sudden going to mobile home parks? Well, it was uh, you know, a big change for sure. It's a, you know, a bigger asset. Uh, you know, the, the parks that I bought in Georgia were, it was two parks about a mile from each other. There were 71 spaces total. So, you know, dealing with a bigger asset, I think because of the just amount of research I'd done over a few years and, and underwriting a lot of different, both apartments and mobile home parks, I did feel comfortable that I could kind of take what I had learned in the single family space and convert that into managing mobile home parks, really a lot relying on the expertise of this consulting company, CCI Investments, that I 
started to work with who had deep experience in mobile home parks. Uh, so I kind of knew that that combination would work. But it, yeah, it's definitely different than just managing a single family home in terms of the uh, you know tenants and turnover and due diligence and other infrastructure issues you might have to deal with that are different than homes. Were you an active investor in this first mobile home park? Yes. Yeah. So I was the general partner on, on the deal. I brought in about 10 investors uh, along with me. One of the reasons why I first got into the mobile home park business, well, you know, a couple of reasons. One was a smaller entry point from a, from a purchase price standpoint, this park in Georgia was $825,000 for 71 spaces. So, wow. you know, I know you couldn't find a 71 unit apartment building for that price, but in the mobile home park world, uh, this was back in 2019, you could get in for a little bit less money. So I knew I would have to then go out and raise less money for investors. So I was kind of looking for, a, you know, one for a smaller deal to get into. And then also, I think when I first started to, there were a lot of people out there putting together syndications in apartments. And I was looking for something also to differentiate myself that would give the investors I was talking to an alternative to other things they'd already seen. I guess what were the most significant challenges in going into the mobile home, home park industry? Well, let me see. I think sometimes, I think one of the things as I was going through due diligence, one of the things that can potentially make them good investments, but then it kind of can potentially add some risk as you're going through the due diligence process is verifiable income. The gentleman that we bought the park from was only accepting cash from his tenants. So, you know, we couldn't prove it, but there was a likelihood that he wasn't reporting all the cash. So, you know, if you've got a well-run apartment building that's got everything through running through the books properly and tax returns, you can do really good income verification in a situation like this, where, you know, you've got a rent roll, you can go through the park, you can see the tenants are there, but you don't necessarily have bank deposits that you can match up to the rent roll and uh, match up financial statements to tax returns. But what that can give you sometimes, if you kind of are able to do the right due diligence, is potentially get a better price and then also get good seller financing terms, which mm. we ended up getting with this these parks. And then we ended up telling the seller, hey, you know, we like the park. You know, we understand the financial records aren't that clean. But what that means is we can't take this to a bank and just get traditional financing. So can you carry back a note for us? So we got really good payment terms with him, being able to get an interest-only loan for four years that we had the ability to extend to eight years. So that was something that is good about the mobile home park business when you're dealing directly with a kind of a mom and pop, maybe less sophisticated operator that you can negotiate whatever terms you might be able to negotiate. So to have kind of interest-only terms on a note and uh, have the seller carry back something for us made it a really, really good deal. So I take it he was indicating that there was more income than what was you were able to verify? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. And so therefore was hoping for a better price than he eventually got. How were you able to convince him that, that he wasn't going to be able to do any better and particularly that there just wasn't going to be any bank financing? It took a while. We, you know, we asked him that when we first got under contract, if he'd be willing to carry back a note on the property. And he said, no, nope, absolutely not. I just want to sell the park. But mm -hmm. we learned through the broker that he had this park on the market, uh, actually under contract a couple of times at like 1.1 million and 950,000. And then we came in and got an offer accepted at 825. So 
probably, I don't know, two thirds away through the due diligence process, we really came to him and said, okay, hey, like the consultants I were working with helped with this process and said, hey, we've been in this business a long time. We bought and sold lots of parks. You've had this thing on the market and it's fallen out of contract a few times. If you really want to sell this park, you're going to have to carry back some financing for it because we know all the banks that we thought might be able to do this and they're not going to be able to. So after that, he relented and said, okay, and ended up carrying back a note for us. Interesting uh, trajectory there. Todd, you have a lot to offer. How can our enlightened investors get in touch with you to take advantage of that? Yeah, well, again, my company is Blue Elm Investments. So you can go to my website, www.blueelminvestments.com. I have an investor club button on there. So if you want to reach out, then we can schedule a call to talk. I, I put my the deals I put together have been a, a combination of 506B and 506C to sometimes allow non accredited investors. And in those situations, I just need to be able to have a conversation, get to know the person a little bit better, and just want to make sure that everybody in my investor pool. Uh, that I'm kind of aligning them with the right right investments for them, and it's a good good diversification play, and uh, that they you know understand what they're getting into. Uh, a lot of my investors are, especially coming here from Silicon Valley, or perhaps only used to investing in publicly traded companies through their 401k or their brokerage accounts. So there's a definitely an education process for some people to understand what it's like just to pool our money together and go out and buy a commercial asset. So yeah, so please please feel free to reach out to my on my website or via email at Todd T O D D at BlueElminvestments.com. Todd, take us through your initial transition from corporate executive to a real estate investor and how it is that you were able actually to leave that the corporate position. Well, yeah, it it, it was a it, yeah, definitely was a it was a process to get there. I was I decided I wanted to build this company, uh, so I founded Blue Home Investments, and then started to, at that time, talk to people that I was working with and other friends that I knew, and just to talk to them about what I was doing and find out if they had any interest in investing in real estate. And I got a good response from people. There were a lot of people that said, "Yes, I'd love to invest in real estate, but but I don't know how." And houses in Silicon Valley are so expensive, or I had a bad experience with a, a tenant, they might say, and I had to sell the house, or I heard horror stories about people buying condos in Las Vegas and losing all their money. So there was an education process to start talking to people. And it started slowly like that, saying, hey, I know you're interested in real estate. I'm building this company. If I found an opportunity that we could pool our money together and go and buy something, would you be interested? And started to just collect and curate those kind of investors. And while I was still working my W-2 job is when I put the deals in, in Georgia together. And then it was kind of a, a, a fortunately for me, I had a, was able to transition slowly out of my W-2 job where I was able to kind of go from full-time to working four days a week, uh, to doing some consulting with another finance consulting company after I left my kind of main W-2 job. So I was fortunate that I was able to kind of slowly transition away from that versus feeling like I had to just like quit on a certain day and embark on something myself. So it kind of was a kind of a slow transition leading out of corporate finance and into building Blue Elm Investments. Todd, what was the the actual turning point that actually made it possible to to leave the corporate position? I, I it was, you know, kind of a combination of the deals that I was putting together and and that part of the business growing. 
And, and then really getting to the point where I needed to dedicate all of my time to that. It was, you know, a little possible. It was a lot of work in the beginning, working full time while I was, you know, educating people, going to conferences, going to meetups multiple times a week. That was, you know, incredibly time consuming. Uh, and then it kind of transitioned to a situation where I needed to spend a lot more time focusing on the investments I'd made. And that was probably, this probably kind of the turning point where I, you know, I realized I needed to dedicate more time to those than I could if I was still kind of tied to working a, a W-2 job or doing even finance consulting. So if I understand you, Todd, the, the turning point was actually the time commitments became mm-hmm. so great within the business that you just had to make that choice. Todd, you went from starting out with the mobile home parks and you transitioned to apartment complexes. Why did you make that transition and what has that transition been like? Yes. Well, I, after being in the mobile home park business for a few years, I bought the parks in Georgia that I had mentioned earlier. I bought another park in Tennessee through a syndication and then did a joint venture to buy a park in Arkansas. So I'd been, you know, been in that business for a few years and was gaining great experience. At the same time, I was finding that some of my investors were also interested in other asset classes. And while I love the mobile home park business, and there's some great things about it. I also wanted to be able to offer some diversification to my investors. So I started to look at, at different operators and uh, other people out there in the syndication business putting apartment deals together. Met a couple of guys that work that actually live pretty close to me here in the San Francisco Bay Area who were also working with some bigger apartment operators and decided to partner up with them to raise some money for a big apartment project in the North Carolina, South Carolina, Oklahoma City metros, kind of a big portfolio that was being purchased and put that out to my investors. You know, I thought the deal was great. I personally wanted to to invest in it. And again, got a great response from my investors who said, hey, you know, we know Todd, we like him. He's got good experience. You know, mobile home parks aren't a a big leap going from mobile home parks to apartments. They like the deal, they like the returns. And from my standpoint, it was good to give my investors another option outside of mobile home parks. Mm-hmm. So did you actually go into that as a general partner or were you strictly a limited partner on that? That was that would that one we went as a big limited partner. So this operator that we were working with typically wouldn't take smaller investor checks to put their deals together. And this was a uh you know, hundred million dollar plus portfolio purchase. So myself and a few other partners kind of went in as a large limited partner because of the uh, bigger amount of money we were able to bring to the table. Well, fascinating trajectory there from actively involved in mobile home parks and then going to this $100 million project. That's a pretty big leap, but of course you were doing it as a passive investor. How long ago was that transition? And that was actually, uh, let me see, this is, that was just a couple months ago that we oh, okay. raised money for that, that deal. So it, it's pretty recent and it was for, for my standpoint, I, I liked it as well, though, for, you know, kind of going in as a big limited partner, working with a very big operator. That was a you know different take for me versus mm-hmm. on the mobile home park side. I was definitely more active with, you know, doing all of the underwriting, you know, really getting involved in day-to-day nuts and bolts of what's going on at the park and, you know, any issues, good or bad happening there, which is what I've kind of decided through this process is that my goal wasn't to really big a build a big 
mobile home park empire, which may have looked like that trajectory as I started. I wanted to transition my business into more, you know, working with investors, you know, doing due diligence, doing underwriting, but then finding good opportunities for my investors mm -hmm. to place their capital. Well, that's a very, very different strategy, and it's going to require entirely different processes. What have you learned in that? What have been the big challenges in making that transition? Well, I guess it, it, one of the things I maybe learned was that the mobile home park business as, is as hard or harder to manage and run those properties as I may have heard or read before I got started. I think the, you know, the good part about mobile home parks that I really like is there's such a huge need for affordable housing across the country and mobile home parks are really, an, I think, the ideal solution. There's literally hundreds of thousands of vacant lots in parks across the country that with a little bit of investment could be filled in and offer a great affordable housing option for people. So that was, uh, so the experience in the, in the mobile home park business has been, has been fantastic. I think one of the things that I've learned as I've talked to my investors is they, they do like that flexibility of places to invest and they can either do it with multiple operators looking at multiple syndicators to work with, or there's a you know, potential in my case that I can offer, you know, without getting too diverse and getting, getting spread too thin with offering too many different kinds of options, be able to offer some different things as, you know, if I see real good opportunities come up to bring those to people and say, hey, I've met this great operator or there's this great market you should get into and present those opportunities. Todd, just think back over, over your life here. What has been the most difficult setback that you've had to deal with? How did you come through that time and what were some of the major lessons you learned? Let me see. Well, I, you know, I, I think I can even re reflect back on the, these mobile home parks in Georgia. So we bought these in 2000, uh, the fall of 2019 and had this initial pro forma plan set up for here's, we're going to fill vacant lots and, and you know, like slowly get rents closer to market and, you know, kind of take this investor capital and uh, start to turn the park around. And then COVID hit and we couldn't evict people who weren't paying. And you've got Georgia that's typically a pretty landlord-friendly state, all of a sudden wasn't because, you know, the courts were closed and, you know, just all, all around, the, all across the board. Right. And so we, so we really got that, you know, affected our business, certainly. So we had to really pivot and decide, okay, here was our initial five-year plan for this park where we just, again, kind of had this beautiful model a spreadsheet of how the business was going to go and it wasn't going to go that way. So we had to work as hard as we could, you know, the tenants that we could, you know, help leave the park. We tried to work through that process, tried to work through getting rental assistance, had to change our capital expenditure plan in terms of how fast we were going to be able to infill the lots. So, so, you know, that was a challenge. And then communicating to investors as well, who again, kind of, you know, see the initial pitch deck in terms of what the project will look like on a, you know, kind of years one through five and going through that communication process with them. So yeah, that, that was a, you know, a, a, I guess a big challenge to work through that, but we made it through, you know, we ran the park as well as we could. We obviously, uh, even though we couldn't evict tenants because their courts were closed, we still had to maintain the park and keep it clean and repair the houses that we owned in the park to keep our tenants happy there. 
And we ended up actually selling that park just uh, last month. So a good result overall. We initially had a five-year plan to hold the park and we ended up selling it, you know, kind of a little bit short of three years. Did you have to go back and request more capital reserves? We didn't, uh, you know, because we kind of early on in the process, as soon as COVID hit, kind of the early days of COVID, it was like, okay, we, we continued to invest a little bit of capital and we actually bought some used refurbished mobile homes and you know, filled in a couple vacant lots. But as soon as we really realized that, that this was going to go on for an extended period and the courts were closed and we knew that some of our tenants in the affordable housing space were legitimately affected by uh, you know, their jobs being lost to COVID, whether it was a retail position or somebody working in a nail salon or, you know, some home healthcare type job that their income was affected, that we really kind of like cut back our spending significantly and with a plan to kind of write it out as long as we can. So no, so we, did, we didn't have to go back and make a capital call. Thank goodness. Todd, it's been a delight having you, Enlightened Investors, an informative conversation. Again, thank you so much for being with us. Enlightened investors, if you have questions or comments, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. I look forward to being with you in our next episode. Todd, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steed Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steed Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steed Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at steedtalker.com.